Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. He is a financier with his career at Goldman Sachs. He is a diplomat with his public service to the nation as ambassador to Germany. But now he's in the trenches, the governor of New Jersey. And we're thrilled that Phil Murphy uh, could join us this morning. Phil Murphy, what do you need from President Biden when he shows up in January? Tom, good to be with you. Uh, Good to be with you all. Um, We need it before January. I echo... uh, Yours and John's comments, um, I can't say enough good things about Speaker Pelosi. I think Steve Mnuchin's a reasonable guy and a smart guy and interlocutor. Uh, we need a deal. Uh, we need a deal before January, and that has to include state, uh, state aid, now, it, you know, obviously extending unemployment, help for small businesses, uh, all, all the needs that we know about. Uh, but we need a big jolt of state aid. I think if, if, President, uh, if it becomes President Biden, and that's where my money is, that's where my support is, um, I, I would suspect we'll still need more of that. My guess is whatever deal we get may not, yeah. be, may not fit the bill. And, 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 and big investments, not just talking in infrastructure, things like the Gateway Project, which you guys know well, which is the most important infrastructure project sitting there to be done in the United States. Phil Murphy, you grew up in Needham, Massachusetts, where you learned the marginal value of a Red Sox victory. You went to Harvard and did economics, where you learned the marginal dynamics of economics. You're dealing now with the biggest marginal problem in the country. The millionaires are going to leave, add it up, 10.7% above a million. You've got the 2.44% property tax, and you've got a lovely sales tax as well. There's no incentive. What are you going to do? What are you going to say to the millionaires that watch Lisa Bramowitz every morning? Tom, you'll you'll appreciate it. I don't see it that way. I I haven't been holding my breath on the marginal value of any Red Sox wins this year, uh, given the season they had. Listen, we, we were successful in, in asking the wealthiest in our state, the biggest corporations, to pay a few more pennies on their top dollar to help us continue a historic reinvestment in our middle class. That's good for everybody. The thing that chokes people in New Jersey, the folks that, that we lose are the retirees who have a home whose kids have graduated from our number one school system in America, by the way, is property taxes. So that's why our budget has a huge dose of direct property tax relief. New Jersey is the, the, the state to raise a family. We want to keep it that way. We're also a quintessential middle-class state, and asking the wealthiest among us to help us make those investments is good for the middle class. Come on, Governor, it's good Governor, for the, the movers, up to Governor. It and it's good for the, them. The movers are moving out. They're not moving to Massachusetts. They're not moving to Connecticut. They're moving to the nine states with no sales tax. What are you going to do to turn United Van Lines and the rest of them to turn those moving vans around? To, 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 Tom, it's very simple, to give more of what they've got right now, the best state in America to raise a family. If you've got kids who are school age, if you're working, if you care about health care, we have the number one health care system in America, quality of life, location. If you care about talent for your business, there's no better state in America. You get what you pay for in New Jersey. Governor David Tepper left back in 2015. You'll remember the headlines. Is he coming home? Can you confirm that? I've heard that. I have not spoken to him personally. Uh, but I have heard the same, uh, John, as you have uh, heard, and we welcome, we welcome him back. Actually, our number of millionaires over the past number of years is growing, not shrinking, notwithstanding uh, the, 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 uh, the noise 
uh, around moving vans, um, our state is actually growing, including among the wealthiest. Where else will you be able to raise taxes? We've heard again and again about the prospect of doing something around cannabis. Is that, is that just the low-hanging fruits for you now, Governor? John, it's on the ballot on November 3rd uh, as a referendum item. I wish we could have gotten it done through a legislative process. We just we couldn't find the last few votes. So it's on the referendum. I'm strongly supporting it. First and foremost, for social justice reasons, it's, it, low-end drug crimes are the biggest reason by far that we have young persons of color, especially young men of color, in our criminal justice system. But to your point, uh, beyond that, this is a potential significant over time revenue item for the state and a job uh, and, and a source of job growth, uh, which is which are also positives. I hope we'll see it pass in November. Just quickly here on the tax on electronic trading. Are you going ahead with that? Hey, Lisa, uh, we're exploring it, uh, t- taking it seriously. We did not score it in the budget uh, because there's too much uncertainty around it. It's something that we're taking very seriously and studying very seriously. In the meantime, the virus is continuing to spread and we're seeing some worsening numbers in New Jersey. What is the threshold at which you will shut down uh, in school, uh, in person schooling and go back to all remote? Yes, yeah, so Lisa, one of the blessings we have in New Jersey is we've got hundreds of school districts. So we reviewed each and every one of their plans when we shut in March and each and every one of them when we reopened in September. So that will overwhelmingly be a local specific decision. And that's what it, that's what's actually playing out. The back to school for us so far has been very successful. We've had only 11 outbreaks in school buildings out of over 3000 touching 43 kids and educators. We take every one of those seriously, believe me. Uh, but that's well within uh, any expectation. I hope we never get back to the point we were in March, Lisa, where we had to make a, a statewide move to shut everything down. Uh, please, God. Uh, Governor, one final question, if I could, and it is a question of delicacy within this pandemic as you've confronted it and Governor Cuomo confronted it early on. We now have a touch point of a new pandemic that crosses over to religion, where you need to work with these zones, these small communities, in this case with Orthodox Judaism. How are you going to dovetail your pandemic response from the, with the need for religious freedom? How do you do that? How do you execute that in the coming days in Lakewood, New Jersey. Yeah, Tom, I, I, yeah, I think we've, we've been able to do that from the get-go. We clearly had a period beginning in, in mid-March where we had to shut everything down. And when we did that, we were in close contact uh, with, with the leadership across the whole spectrum of religions, including uh, the leadership in Lakewood. Um, and as we've been able to reopen and, and get back to worshiping first outside and now inside, it's been done under strict uh, limits, capacity limits, face masks, social distancing, all the stuff that we all, uh, we all know. Uh, we've been in, in very close contact with the leadership in the community, as you can imagine, over the past couple of weeks. I'm actually gonna be in Ocean County tomorrow where Lakewood sits. Um, and, and I can't say enough good things about the cooperation of the elected leaders and faith leaders there. But we are having an issue with the transmission from that cooperation down to the man on the street uh, and we got to yeah. nip it and we got to be aggressive about it. I'm not going to mince words, Governor. I mean, one final, I, I, I guess, question. This comes back, comes in from Michael Barr in Bloomberg Business of Sports. Is it your fault the Giants and the Jets are as bad as they are? What are you <laughs> going to do? What are you going to initiate? This is a state embarrassment. First of all, they're the New York Jets, the New York Giants. You own them. God love you. That's great that they're in New Jersey. They 
are terrible. Do something. The what hard are you going to do? They're owned by great families and oh, great please. organizations, but they're off to a, a really tough start. There's no other way to put it. And by the way, South Jersey roots for the Eagles. They're 0-2-1, so we got 0-8-1 with the three pro teams that people follow in our state. The it's governor doing so the math. Do the math and the taxes as well. He is the governor of New Jersey, Philip Murphy. We're thrilled he could join us. Right now, James Sweeney with us with Credit Suisse. This is an incredibly important interview because we keep track of the tone of our great guests, our great economists. James Sweeney, hugely optimistic on a European recovery amid the deflation gloom of a couple years ago. He's gotten really cautious on the American economic experience. James Sweeney, I am thunderstruck by the percent of companies firings. It's not three or four percent. It seems to be a much bigger number. Is that surprising to you? No, it's not. It's not surprising. I, I think there's three categories of problems for the labor market. Uh, one is is that you have companies with damage to their earnings, to their balance sheets. Their labor demand is lower. Uh, second, you have companies uh, whose sales outlooks are still impaired because they know the economy out there is weak. And they know the pandemic is, is still going. Uh, so their labor demand is lower. And, and then third, you have companies that just from using Zoom or uh, other changes to technology use or just pandemic life changes have maybe recognized that they could get by with fewer workers from a longer term perspective, which might be a productivity boost for them overall. Uh, but that leads to lower labor demand now. And, and I, don't, I don't think all three of these factors have been fully activated through the pandemic. And the layoffs you're seeing now is, is companies responding to their particular circumstances and their particular mix. But this is a big issue because what it means is that labor income now has a big headwind when you add the fact that that extra unemployment income has been taken away uh, at the beginning of August and, and the fact that, um, that state and local governments are, are straining and, and maybe reducing some workers as well, uh, you're, you're losing quite a lot of income support under, under consumption, which as recently as a few months ago was extraordinarily well supported by policy. So the momentum shift happening in the economy is, is large. Let's build on this, James. The idea of the momentum shift also away from the lower income workers that were the initial victims within the pandemic layoffs to the higher income workers that we now see. I was just looking at some data today showing that bank cuts that they have announced so far are on pace to top what we saw last year. Insurance companies are cutting. You're seeing uh, energy companies cutting jobs. As these higher paid jobs get eliminated from the system, is that trickle down effect, the other jobs, the lower income ones that those support, are, are, is that weakness being adequately accounted for in the current projections? Um, well, I mean, I think this is why when I think you talk to a lot of economists, including myself, you're going to get a cautious tone about the speed of the further decline in the unemployment rate. So you're not going to hear a lot of people say we're going to have 5% unemployment within 12 months or anything like that. So, again, I, I would take it back to those three factors I've, I've mentioned. Some of this is forward-looking, some of this is backward-looking, and some of this is really just tweaking and, and trying to gain efficiencies, maybe some efficiencies that have been realized uh, but you know, were not recognized before the crisis. And we're just going to have a lot of this at, at one time, and it's, it's really going to slow 
the uh, you know the the return of, of about 12 million, 13 million missing jobs that we have in, in the in the economy overall, and, and that lowers income. And if you add to that, you know, a failure to get a fiscal stimulus done so that you know the government is is not helping anymore on that incremental income, uh, then spending is going to have a real a real problem. James, slightly academic of me, so forgive me, but looking further out, a few years further out, what do you expect the participation rate in America to look like, given the shifts that we're seeing and some of the permanent changes as well? You hear governments throwing around the words training, retooling and things like that, and I always sit here and just think, you first, you go away and get a new skill set. It's not that simple. James, what do you think the participation rate in America looks like for years to come? Um, I think it will rebound. I think it will rebound nicely. I mean, if you're if you're looking at the big um, shifts in participation over the last 10 or 15 years, uh, you have to account for the demographics. So the fact that baby boomers born after 1945 started turning 65 in, in 2010 really? uh, meant that, you know, total participation for the economy was really destined to move lower as that cohort moved out. But if you adjusted for that, you would find still some missing workers, some non-participants. And this was uh, deeply injured parts of the labor market going through that 08 experience and maybe experiencing some social troubles which were intensifying at the same time. So a lot of progress has been made on those things. And on demographic-adjusted participation measures, uh, we've actually gotten back to pretty decent long-term levels, again, accounting for that aging. But but now you have this. And you have this hole in 12 million jobs. And um, even if we have a decent rebound and the unemployment rate does get back to respectable levels, you know, within a year or two, uh, we, we probably will have, again, uh, some groups, some cohorts um, which, which are injured, which are damaged, uh, where there's been some skills atrophy, some disconnection with firms and some people with persistent difficulties in, in resuming. So, you know, so I'd, I'd expect mean reversing, mean reversion in participation over time, but I would, I would subtract a little bit from that uh, due to long-term consequences for particular, particular workers. James, just a final one from me. I'm thinking about a very specific cohort, maybe late 60s in the journalism business. Um, do you expect this both, particular both cohort that, to... Both, both yeah, those kind of people, those kind of people. James... Yeah. Read my mind. Those kind of people. Do you expect them to retire anytime soon or will that be increasingly difficult? Oh, my. Honestly, I think we're stuck with them. <laughs> really? Okay, James. Thank you, sir. Perfect and Thank answer. you. Thank you very much. Just for the serious question at the end there, James Sweeney, Credit Suisse Chief Economist. Uh, Jim O'Sullivan with his TD Securities, who has to sort all this out, and of course the economics into the markets as well. Jim, you know from Chapter 23 of Econ 101, the markets get out front and expect. Are the markets signaling a better economy Q1 next year, Q2 next year? Um, hi, Tom. Good morning. Hi, John, everybody. Um, well, I would think so. I mean, it's hard to say exactly what's priced into markets, but there does seem to be a lot of optimism priced into to markets. I mean, I don't think people expect to see the, the, the strength that we we're seeing in the third quarter, or just saw in the third quarter to be repeated going forward. But clearly people are assuming that it's it's up and pretty solid from here. I mean, exactly how strong, but yes, I would, I would say the risk is that people probably are a little ahead of themselves from that perspective. The recovery in the vector is the idea of getting back to the trend line that we were on in January or February of this troubled year. How long does it take us 
to get back to a constructive trend line? Is it quarters or is it years? Well, I mean, we would say years. I mean, certainly in terms of just getting back to the level of GDP that we were at at the end of 2019, I mean, I think that, um, I mean, that, that could well happen during 2022. But of course, in the meantime, if trend growth is one and a half to two percent per year, I mean, you're certainly talking much, much later than that. I mean, I think the way to think about it is more the unemployment rate. If we were at three and a half percent back in February, how long before we see something close to four percent again? And obviously, the Fed's projections, their median projection has them hitting that level at the end of 2023. I think that's plausible, um, but it's probably being optimistic, if anything. It's probably even later than that. Well, Jim, they weren't optimistic enough going into year end. Initially, they were looking for something north of nine on the unemployment rate. We're now in at around eight. Jim, talk to us about that. The correction down to eight, the positive move we've seen in a very short amount of time and how much harder it will be to get from eight to four. Yes, I think in general, I mean, uh, Trump is right, (laughs) I guess, to start it off in the sense that um, we've had a record recovery. I mean, certainly the numbers over the last four months or so have been stronger than we expected, I think most people expected, payrolls up over 10 million in four months, looks like third quarter GDP, I mean, we've got a 25% annual rate. If anything, the tracking numbers like Atlanta Fed are over 30% at this point. I mean, they're record numbers, no question about it. But of course, the net of it is still down pretty sharply. Employment as, as of now is down 11 and a half million from where we were in February. And plus, as you're touching on clearly, momentum seems to be fading. I mean, there's no question, I think, that momentum is slowing relative to the third quarter. And the question then is how much? I mean, we'll get an update on that, of course, tomorrow with the employment report. We think the risks are tilted toward a weaker number tomorrow with the idea that momentum is clearly slowing here. And how much of that is because of fiscal stimulus fading is not clear. But um, we do think momentum is, is fading fairly significantly. Well, Jim, that's what I wanted to touch on with you. I think a quote that stands out for everyone in the last quarter, the start of summer, Jamie Dimon, JP Morgan said the following. This is not a normal recession. The recessionary part of this you're going to see down the road. I assume he's alluding to the fact that even with the labor market shock, because of fiscal action, we didn't have the income shock. Jim, where are we now just in terms of disposable income and the amount of cash in the hands of consumers, even as this fiscal package just fades into the background? Well, there's been there was, of course, a huge increase in income, even as employment plunge um, with 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 the plunge in the economy. And I mean, even now, income, I mean, is coming off a little bit the last couple of months. And it's going to be down again in this morning's report for August, almost certainly, as unemployment benefits were, were clearly down on, on the month. But the net of it is still is still a boost, certainly from the various various fiscal support. And I think it's because of the big surge in income that we've seen strength in consumer spending in particular. And within consumer spending, good spending is, has been stronger than before the crisis. But the overall economy clearly is not anywhere near back to where, where it was. But at this point, it looks like income is fading. Um, and certainly the stimulus part of that is fading. Now, that, that's why, I mean, these talks are going on in Congress. Do we get another round or not? Absent another round, it looks like fiscal stimulus is waning to the point where it actually turns into a drag in the fourth quarter. How much of a drag? Well, I mean, it's hard to quantify in terms of the exact numbers, but for what it's worth, the CBO puts out calculations based on current baseline, assuming no further legislation. They say that fiscal stimulus goes from adding 13 points to the annualized growth rate in the third quarter to subtracting seven points in the fourth and subtracting six points in the first. Now, those estimates come with wide uncertainty bands, but I think the direction is is is, is pretty intuitive. Just when you look at the flow of, of cash outlays from the Treasury, they surged and, and now they're coming back down again. Jim, how do you trade this, given the degree of uncertainty and the wide range of outcomes? 
You know, um, I mean, I guess my focus is more the the pure pure macro. Um, I think in general, certainly the backdrop here is such that, I mean, the Fed is going to have to be highly accommodated for many, many years. So, I mean, I think you could trade the ups and downs in, in bond yields, certainly, and uh, the news flow can go up and down. And I mean, if, if we're right, I think people will be disappointed by the employment report tomorrow, for example. Um, but certainly the, the broad thrust of this is that interest rates are going to be low for many, many years. I mean, exactly what that means for the equity market. There's so much more that comes into it, the politics, um, how do people react to the election? So there, there's a lot there, obviously, people have to have to figure out. Jim, when you when you look at this jobs report and when you look in the all in American experiment, it comes down to potential GDP. Have you lowered your potential GDP off this pandemic? Um, I, I can't say I have, a, I have an official number of potential GDP. And I think to some extent it's moot in terms of the next year or two years. I mean, ultimately, I mean, I know the whole idea of Nairo and full employment has been has been uh, de-emphasized in recent years. But I mean, I think to the extent you think full employment of the economy was something in the 4% range for the unemployment rate. I mean, we are so far from that right now that it's moot and it's gonna be several years probably before we get there. Um, I mean, I think, I mean, of course, over the long run, potential growth depends on productivity growth, depends on labor force growth. And both of those have slowed in recent decades. And I mean, there's nothing recently to suggest that we should be marking those numbers up again. Of course, the CBO just came out with longer term numbers and um, just was it last week or the week before, and they marked down their longer term projections. Um, but um, I can't say I have an official number on on potential growth. But when we're talking, when you're arguing whether it's 1.6% or 1.9% and GDP is down as much as it is right now, I think it's, it's moot. I mean, ultimately, it becomes a factor again in terms of what's full employment and what should the Fed be aiming for. But at this point, Given where the unemployment rate is, we're clearly so far from potential that it, it, it is moot from the Fed's perspective right now. Jim, just quickly, 24 hours and about 50 minutes away from a payrolls report in America. You kept saying that you expect a downside surprise. Let's put some muscle on those bones just quickly. Here's the estimate. 872 is the median estimate in our survey. Unemployment expected to come in at around 8.2 percent. Jim, historically, for our audience that are familiar with you, historically, you are a very, very accurate forecaster of payrolls. What are you actually looking for? Um, we've got 400 total payrolls. I mean, I think it will be an important detail in this report, private versus government. Uh, we've got private up 600,000 and then government taking 200,000. I mean, one issue is uh, with usually there, there, there's a surge of employment back onto government books with state and local education workers in particular in September, to the extent you get fewer than usual this year. And the seasonal factors will overcompensate for that. So, um, and then we'll see on the private, we've got 600,000. So they're positive numbers still, but obviously if you look at total payrolls, there were 4.8 million in June, 1.7 million in July, 1.4 million in August. So if you get something like 400,000, I think people will extrapolate yeah. and start speculating about the possibility we get a double dip in the fourth quarter. The deceleration story. Jim, great to catch up, sir. Jim O'Sullivan, DT thank Securities you. Chief U.S. Macro Strategist. Thank you. If you need real caution, there's no other place to look than real estate. And maybe not, you know, selected suburbs booming as people leave cities, but in commercial real estate, the operative word is grim. Rebecca Rocky keeps score at Cushman and Wakefield is global head of forecasting with uh, four, five, 12 degrees from Penn State, also work out of the Johns Hopkins uh, University. Rebecca, good morning. I love your report and the mathematical acuity. Let me go to the price dynamic. 
Why aren't rents going down, or do you predict they will plunge? Hi. Well, good morning, and thank you for having me, and thank you for that feedback. Um, you know, for, for rents in the commercial property markets, it takes time for asking rates or base rates to start to move. And so that's not unusual. It happens at different paces in different regions that we cover in the report. But certainly in the United States, what we see in the aggregate across the country is it takes a few quarters for landlords to be willing to move that price. What does tend to happen a bit sooner is that we start to see increases in concessions, in free rent, and those sorts of things, which sort of serve as a precursor to movements in the asking rate. Which is how you're forecasting this forward. And in your report, you predict that it's going to take until 2025 for office rents to get back to where they were pre-pandemic, and that rents will decline nearly 11% over the next two or so years. What about the coastal cities in the United States? How much more will office rents decline there? Sure. I think, you know, th when you think about where there's more risk versus less, it's not necessarily coastal versus non-coastal, right? So I think where we're going to see a greater potential rent correction is possibly in markets that have higher levels of construction coming to the market relative to the size of the market, where we also are potentially expecting greater declines in demand. And that's not just markets that may have a construction wave headed their way. There are a number of markets that maybe don't have some of the demographic backdrop to support future office job growth that other key markets have. Wait, so Rebecca, what seen, this is key, sure. and, and I apologize for breaking in here, but everyone seems to think that the biggest cities are going to empty out and become ghost towns of office buildings that are relics from another era. What you're saying is completely different. I'm guessing that you're talking about secondary or tertiary cities that have been building up recently in the response to people moving in recent years. Those might be the hardest hit. Am I right? You know, I, I don't think we know the answer quite yet. There's a lot of noise in even the residential data when you look at some of these gateway cities versus lower cost cities. On the margin, we have seen some movement. How temporary versus permanent that is, is a big question mark. And for these big cities, I think what's also key is most international borders are shut down. And it's very typical of Los Angeles, Boston, yeah. New York, D.C., Miami, to have international migration serve as a source of population growth in, yeah. in those cities. So, you know, this is not unusual. Rebecca, I want to go back to the balance sheet and the income flows of commercial real estate. And, of course, Cushman Wakefield uh, with their, their venerable history back across the 20th uh, century. Rebecca, is this going to be worked out on a balance sheet where, you know, there's bankruptcies and things clear and loans are written down, et cetera, or is it going to be worked out on the income statement with reduced cash flows, reduced rents? Which way will that cut? Uh, you know, I think it may be a little bit of both. Um, you know, we're certainly uh, working with uh, our landlord clients to protect those cash flows. But in the event where it's just not necessarily something that can be done, that's certainly going to be idiosyncratic in nature. Um, we, we may see it play out a different way. You know, and Rebecca, what's fascinating to me, and Lisa and I live this, is, is I know there's Class A, Class B, Class C, D, E property as well. When you drive down the streets of any city in this country and you see the retail apocalypse because of Amazon, because of the pandemic, how does Rebecca Rocky think you clear that market, all those empty storefronts? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, the way you clear markets is for pricing to adjust. So I think that that's something we're witnessing. Rebecca, I don't mean to interrupt. Lisa interrupted, so I get to interrupt. We do balancing interrupting, uh, Rebecca. but, But Rebecca, what are we waiting for to have those rents come down? You know, I think we're waiting for transactions, right? There's just, it's a frozen market at this time and there's still a lot of uncertainty. So when we're talking to clients, they're, they're, they're they're doing an exercise of information gathering. They're, they're figuring out and waiting very likely until we have some degree of more certainty. And that's really hard right now because unlike other recessions or down cycles where it was truly market-based sort of shocks, we're dealing with something that's, fundamental ambiguity, right? A medical crisis, trying to figure out how that translates into the economy and real estate, fundamentally more difficult exercise. Rebecca, thank you so much. Very valuable. Rebecca Rocky with Cushman and Wakefield there on commercial real estate. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.